Stick around until the end of the episode to hear the trailer for From Coover to Qatar, remaking the US men's national team, a narrative podcast from The Athletic. Sam Stayskull and Paul Tenorio spoke with head coach Greg Berhalter, star players Weston McKenney and Tyler Adams, and US soccer legend Clint Dempsey, among many others, to bring you the first-hand story of the men's national team's long road from not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup to sending a talented young squad to this year's tournament. You'll be able to get every episode right here on the Athletic Soccer Show feed on November the 1st. So be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is the weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action from across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host and I'm joined by the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. How you doing, mate? I'm doing all good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. A nice weekend. I mean, today we're going to talk about a big weekend of footballing action, the ups and downs of sticking or twisting in terms of your manager for Aston Villa and Leeds United in particular, the redemption arcs of Inter and possibly Juventus and plenty more. But it feels like the only place to start today, Jay, is with a tale of two Uniteds in the Premier League, Manchester United's <laughs> media heavy week under Eric Ten Hag and whether Newcastle United are genuinely top four contenders after they beat Tottenham Hotspur in North London on USA Network. I mean, Jay, last week we talked briefly about that nil-nil draw between these two sides, but we'll address them individually for now. Manchester United were the better team for long spells against Chelsea, a game that ended one all on NBC. And there's been a lot of talk about them this week, not least about Cristiano Ronaldo walking off down the tunnel, refusing to come on in their win over Spurs. But Ten Hag then left him out of the squad here and he's stamping his authority on this team. What have you made of it all? I mean, it's obviously a, a really tricky situation for Eric Ten Hag to be put in. And I think ever since he he took over at Manchester United, this has kind of just been constantly raging on in the background and at times has made has made me and I'm sure plenty of others feel sorry for him. You know, he's trying to start a completely new project and he's just got this hanging around his neck constantly, you know, should Ronaldo start? Um, is he going to accept coming off the bench? This kind of constant whirlwind of of media attention around Ronaldo when He's just trying to get settled in what is a new league, a new country, a new mm. team. But I have to say, I think the way he's he's handled the Ronaldo situation has been um, pretty exemplary. Um, it, we saw it happen under Ranić, where it seemed as if his um, authority was being undermined by Ronaldo in quite a few times, and that you know there were whispers it was happening under Solskjaer. I think what I think Ten Hag is fully justified in in kind of banning Ronaldo from the squad because obviously this isn't the first time this season Ronaldo's done this. He obviously did it in the in pre-season when it was the Rayo Vallecano friendly when he left at half-time along with a few others. Um, so he was clearly warned, um, you know, you, you, you can't do this, that, that this behaviour is not acceptable. And that was a pre-season friendly. Um, so to do it, you know, in the, the 89th minute or whenever it was of a team that you're, you're, that your club's playing in and you know you've just beaten rivals for for top four top six that should be you know a really good moment for the club a little bit of a turning point in their season potentially you know when you consider that it's only a couple of weeks ago they lost really heavily to Manchester City mm. and so to make such a public display of 
sulkiness really is probably the best way to describe it and storm down the tunnel uh, is really bad sportsmanship and a really bad attitude from Ronaldo. You, you know, it was only a couple of weeks ago. He scored a 700th goal, uh, 700th career goal. And, you know, all the Manchester United players are taking photo with him, reveling in that individual achievement. But then when the team had achieved something without him, he couldn't kind of show the same level of respect towards them. So I think Ten Hag's really kind of shown who's in charge at Manchester United. And I think he needed to to kind of set a message to to the entire club and to the and I guess to the footballing world that he's not going to accept it. And having said that, you know, you make decisions like that and you need to get results at the end of the day. So we could be having a very different conversation had Jorginho scored a winner for, for Chelsea, but obviously Casemiro's very, very late header, um, I think probably justifies Ten Hag's decision. But you know what, even if they'd lost, it still would have been the right decision regardless. Yeah, it's a funny one. There was a brilliant article on The Athletic from from Oliver Kay about the fact that maybe the most damning indictment of this whole thing was that it kind of passed, not without notice, clearly we're discussing it, but in terms of <laughs> the, the players, you know, it was that it kind of barely registered with them. They were celebrating the win and and the kind of mirror images to Ruud van Nistelrooy, to, to Roy Keane, mm. when, when Cristiano Ronaldo was a young player in, in the dressing room. And, you know, he knows and has seen how these things end before. Now, obviously, if you have a worldwide international superstar, one of the greatest players ever to play the game, or in, in the squad and, and around the place, there is always going to be media attention around it. But the fact that Eric Ten Hag has, has put his foot down, made his stand, I think you're right. I think he's handled it brilliantly. And... That was interesting that Casemiro was the man that came up big and a header that Prime <laughs> CR7 would have been very proud of. And that's it. That leadership in the midfield that Casemiro has shown this week in both games, I think, is so crucial to this United resurgence. And it's that kind of quiet leadership that perhaps you're not getting elsewhere in this squad. Just just quickly on Ronaldo, because I think you, you briefly touched upon it in what you just said. When all those Man United players are celebrating when Casemiro equalises and, you know, I think Martinez like hugs the fan and, and, and it's all a little bit crazy. They're the moments that are so important to a team's development and Ronaldo wasn't there for it. Um, and so I think that's important to kind of consider going forward that all those, they all helped each other in a, in a difficult moment there. They got each other out of the trenches and Ronaldo was nowhere to be seen. But going on to Casemiro, obviously his his first couple of games for, for Manchester United, there were a few mistakes and people started, you know, quietly laughing about if Manchester United being completely duped here. But, you know, people very easy to forget that Casemiro's, you know, won the Champions League countless times, a Brazilian international. And as you've kind of alluded to, what he's shown over the last two games is what Manchester United have really been crying out for years, a quality central defensive midfielder. And I say that with all respects to McTominay and Fred, but Casemiro's intelligence is is just on another level. And I think what people also maybe don't realise about Casemiro, he's not just a he's not just a bona fide destructor tearing things down. He's also very, very good at kind of making those line breaking passes and getting the team kind of moving and flowing forward. So that that quality that they desperately needed, he's he's come up and um I think to then add goals and assists to his repertoire just shows that it was the the right move to bring him in. Yeah, hundred percent. And and look, the, the you know mentioned Fred and, and McTominay there, and look, this wasn't Scott McTominay's finest hour. Obviously, he rugby tackles Armando <laughs> Brozier, and and that's the reason that Chelsea have the opportunity to take the lead from from the spot. But Casemiro is building relationships with the players around him, and I think that's really interesting. You know, obviously he knows Fred from international duty, and actually we've seen a different side to Fred when he is released from the shackles of the six in some ways. And there's an argument to say that McTominay will also 
benefit from this you know players who can who can yeah. get up and down those kind of straight line eights if you will who are able to you know buzz off a more central anchor figure in order to get the best out of them and, and Christian Eriksen you know is one of those players who's played deep in this team and we've seen what his creative passing can be like from those areas it's freeing him up too to do the, the elements of his game that he's good at and, and actually I thought that, that Casemiro was was excellent in pretty much every facet of this game you know not just the goal and obviously it's a massive goal but just in terms of how this side set up how they build from the back uh, and in terms of just destroying opposition attacks as you say he has the whole package and Manchester United are a better team with him in there a word too for the fullbacks I thought you know this is going to be something that we saw at the start of the season we, they were looking for another right back Diogo Dalot has come in in terms of getting back into this side and has kind of made this spot very much his own now. He's been excellent for a couple of weeks. And Luke Shaw, whose position was under real threat from Terrell Malasio, come in and done well as well, is has, has kind of earned his spot back, has, has, has clawed it back tooth and nail. And we've seen this before from Luke Shaw. It's when he's under pressure, he <laughs> tends to deliver. And he, he's done so here again. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a pretty good position for for Eric Ten Hag to be in to kind of have that kind of competition out wide. Obviously, it's still a shame that Wan-Bissaka doesn't make that many appearances. But but down the left side, when you're a team like Manchester United and you're competing in so many competitions, you can't just over rely on one player in every single position. So for sure, to kind of respond to the competition that Malasia has brought in the season, obviously in the past it was Alex Tellez, but Tellez I guess was a little bit more. Wouldn't say inconsistent, but just he never really nailed down and impressed in the way that I think Malassia did in his first couple of games. So yep. for sure to kind of come back and respond to that and be a bit more of an attacking outlet, um, it's really encouraging for Manchester United. And and, and obviously, Shaw had a, a dreadful season last year. It seemed like there was a bit of a, a hangover from the European Championships and then just the kind of chaos that Manchester United were in last season definitely affected him. So there was only really one direction he could go this season and that was up. But it's it's definitely good and encouraging, obviously, for England ahead of the World Cup to see him just play with a little bit more confidence and a little bit more, well, I guess, with, not necessarily with a smile on his face, but with a bit more enthusiasm than, than maybe he had um, last season. Yeah, the bit between his teeth. But exactly. Now I'd cane it. Um, it's not all positive, though. What's up with Jaden Sancho? Because this is not going to plan. He looks a player devoid of confidence, I think, at the moment. You know, there are moments in this game where he's got a one-on-one, -on -one, which is kind of Jaden Sancho's bread and butter and, and definitely was at Dortmund. You know, he was he was always able to to manipulate the ball so well, to to get in and around the right areas in the box to make things happen. And we've seen flashes of it with his kind of pauses in the box in order to open up space for himself. But this time he just felt like he was sort of running into Trevor Chalaber time and time again without really creating anything. I mean, to be fair to, to Trevor Chalaber, I don't know if you know this, but I don't think excellent. he's ever, I don't think he's ever lost a game he's played in for Chelsea. And I think he's on I can't think what the exact number is, so apologies, listeners, but it's in it's like 23, 24 or something like that. So uh yeah, uh, that that surprised me when I heard it. But I mean with Sancho, it's uh, you have to feel for him a little bit because he joined Manchester United at a time where that summer it felt like Sancho and Varane were gonna be the final pieces of the jigsaw and that they were gonna kick on and compete for the Premier League title against Manchester City and Liverpool. Obviously, we now know that it didn't turn out that way whatsoever. And he kind of came into a team that ended up being really disjointed. Confidence was absolutely blown to pieces. And he is still a very, very young footballer. And he's kind of had to navigate coming back to England with this massive reputation, this massive price tag. And yet he's been thrown into a team and a system that just had no 
cohesion or no plan. And then this year, when everybody's kind of finding their feet under Eric Ten Hag, he's still not quite been able to to kind of kick on and impress in the way that he did at Dortmund. And to be honest, his his thunder's probably been stolen by Anthony a little bit because Anthony's come on at the wing and you know scored three goals in his first three games. You know, played a massive part in that in that win against Arsenal. And so the fans are probably immediately taken to to Anthony. They've seen. Rashford's maybe not converting some of the chances he should, but it certainly feels like Rashford's kind of stepped up a level compared to last season. Yeah. And so Sancho's kind of getting lost in the middle of it all, it seems, and, and is kind of trying to work out where he kind of fits into this team at the moment. But when you look at that Manchester United squad and, and you can see some of those players regaining that confidence, it does kind of feel like Sancho's the one who it's not quite worked out for him at the moment. But then having said that, you know, we're not even in November yet. Um, so there's still plenty of time for him to to kind of flourish over the course of the season. But then again, with the World Cup in mind, because it's, it's all we can kind of talk about and think about, it feels like his chances of, of making England squad are just, you know, evaporating by by the second. Yeah, going trending downwards is probably mm. how I'd put it. Um, Newcastle versus Manchester United was the headline drama for much of the early Premier League era. Maybe it's on the way back because <laughs> it's possibly start, time to start talking about Newcastle in terms of the Champions League conversation. Now, we might we might be a year too early, but the early signs are very promising, I thought. Uh, a very narrow late loss to Liverpool at Anfield, drawing against that Manchester City side, even with Haaland firing on all cylinders, drawing at Old Trafford and now winning away to Spurs. Could they? I mean, I think I said it on the, the pod a couple of weeks ago when they, they blew Brentford 5-1. Um, Brentford made a couple of comical individual errors that game. Yes. Um, but just the atmosphere at St. James's Park is, I mean, it's it's always pretty special, but just sitting in the sitting in the stadium that day, I just got this, I just got this feeling um that they're just to to steal your phrase, trending upwards and that something's happening at that that club. Um it's a really cliched phrase in football to to use the term sleeping giant and growing up. Um, it's something that I'd heard constantly refer Newcastle constantly referred to as Newcastle are a sleeping giant. You know, if Ashley leaves and they get proper investment, watch the way that that club's going to kind of change and evolve. And now that, you know, I'm in my mid twenties and I've kind of seen Newcastle have that investment. Okay. Wow. Like I completely get why people called them a sleeping giant. Like there's so much potential there. Yeah. And so I think I even said they will definitely be in the conversation for the Europa League this season um but now the fact that they've got such a I mean they've got the best defensive record in the league I mean they've only conceded 10 goals so I think Arsenal and City have can Arsenal and Manchester City have conceded 11 they've only lost one game which as you mentioned too was really unfortunate when Cavallo scored in I think it was virtually the last kick of the game against Liverpool yeah. and you look at that back line yes you've got some good players there in Trippier and Botman but I mean, you've still got players like Dan Byrne, Fabian Shaw, Nick Pope, who have always kind of been lower level in the Premier League. So it's not just a case of they're throwing money around. The coaching that Eddie Howe must be doing on the training ground must be simply phenomenal. So I think um, <laughs> I think we should be a little bit intimidated. You know, James McNicholas, one of my colleagues at The Athletic, I think he tweeted, obviously he covers Arsenal. I remember seeing his tweet after the game and I thought he encapsulated perfectly. I think he said something along the lines of it's great to see Tottenham lose, but then at the same time, it's uh, worrying to see that Newcastle really are 
you know, this this coming force and that it's probably going to be even sooner than people predicted that they're going to be knocking on the door for top four. So I really can't see why they wouldn't be able to sneak in this season. I think this is it, though. You know, we're, we're seeing Nick Pope there. One of the safest pairs of hands this league has to offer. Yes, he, he's been lower down the league, but everything pointed to be him being a top-level goalkeeper. Botman's come in. He's been excellent for a long time. Someone that AC Milan and Paolo Maldini in particular was desperate to sign, which is usually a good good signal that someone's <laughs> got a little bit about them in terms of being a defender. And um, But Fabian Scherer, I really like. And I thought he was the best player on the park in this game. Um, he handled Kane really, really well. Between the two of them, they kind of nullified a lot of what Spurs had to offer. Now, you're never going to nullify Kane and Son for an entire game. It's just not how it works. But the, the things they did generally, I thought, were, were very, very impressive. You go in front of them and Bruno Gimenez might be the best player in the league outside the top six. And we're seeing Atlanta United's version of Miguel Almiron, which is delightful <laughs> in so many ways. He was such a joy um, in Georgia. So it's one of those things that everything just seems to be ticking. Everything seems to be clicking. And we've got a January transfer window in not too many games time. Yes, it's far away in terms of dates. But with the World Cup, it's not actually that many games until that window opens. And I have absolutely no doubt that Newcastle will look to strengthen again. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It's a lot of people were kind of talking about the the investment they've had, but actually it's the reinvention of players like Miguel Almiron that's probably more impressive. You know, Joe Linton being converted from a, a failing striker into just a simply sensational box-to-box midfielder. Miguel Almiron's, you know, revenge feud with Jack Grealish, whatever. <laughs> it's got to be one of the funniest kind of like um, sideline stories in the Premier League at the moment this season. But I mean... His finish against Tottenham was obviously superb. You know, he scored a great goal against Brentford as well. Just and a glorious be... one against Fulham. So that's exactly. three in just, a row. Just seems to be absolutely brimming with confidence. And I think I think what I find quite funny about Newcastle, if that's the right way to put it, everyone's forgotten they signed Alexander Isak for £60 million in the summer because obviously he's out injured. So people are like, yeah, Newcastle, Newcastle are looking good. It's like, well, they're looking good without the, you know, the transfer record-breaking transfer signing. Do you know what I mean? So imagine once he comes back from that injury and he's, you know, kind of fully settles into the team. Yeah. We really are in dangerous territory then. Yeah, I think this is it. Um, And I think the time has come to genuinely consider them. I don't necessarily know if they will get into the Champions League, but I think that they are going to be in the conversation. Mm. And that's about as as high a compliment as I can pay to them. Uh, And to Eddie Howe, as you say, who's done a remarkable job with with a number of players here. It's not just been bringing in the big names. It's been working with players to to get them up to the level that is required of them. And you see someone, I think, like Gimenez come in, like Sven Botman come in, and it raises... The level of everyone else as well. They go, right, okay, so that's our new competition. How do we how do we step up to meet them? And so far, so good from a Newcastle United perspective. Uh, onwards then, and we'll flip over to Italy a bit before we do return to the Premier League. It's been a very good week for both Inter and Juventus. They both scored four this weekend. Inter won 4-3 at Fiorentina and Juve hammered Empoli 4-0, both on Paramount+. Plus. Let's start with Inter, Jay. A few weeks ago, we were wondering if Simone Inzaghi was going to survive a poor start to the season in the international break. Since then, they've beaten Barcelona at home, Sinos Sassuolo, gone to the Camp Nou and pretty much secured their spot in the Champions League knockout stages with a draw, and now won twice in a week in the league to leave them just three points off third. It's been quite a turnaround. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, during the international break, we had that conversation and said, this is where, you know, teams who want to compete at the top of the table, who want to compete for trophies, kind of have to dig deep and and pull something out of the bag to kind of really show what they're about. You know, 
teams who don't have the right mentality and don't have the right quality to to compete at the top, they'll fade in those moments. And I think the way Inter responded has been, been simply magnificent. And I think a microcosm of that is probably the game against Fiorentina, which probably had the good, the bad and the, the ugly from, from Inter at the yeah. moment. You know, before this game, I think Fiorentina had only scored eight goals in a legal season. And then all of a sudden they score, they score three in one game. You know, Inter go 2-0 up, Fiorentina come back to 2-all, then 3-2, then 3-all. And then obviously Mkhitaryan scores that goal in, in well, pretty much the, the final it's minute of the game. a dreadful goal to concede from a Fiorentina perspective, but Inter would have bad. been absolutely delighted. It is very bad defending. But I mean, the fact that, you know, they even had so much struggle in one individual game, um, but kind of managed to, to pull to pull through, I think just speaks volumes of, of where they're at at the moment. They know it's going to be a little bit tricky without Lukaku, but then you've got someone like Latoro Martinez just showing why he's one of the one of the most special talents in the league, arguably one of the most special talents in the world, coming up with a, a really great first goal and then kind of converting that penalty. Yeah, I mean, um, this is it. The, he he is sensational. And, you know, I wanted to kind of talk about him and I'll talk about Nicola Barella as well in a minute. But his goals are one thing. But the movement for this first goal, he ties Martinez Quarta in knots before his first. Uh, he bursts away to win the penalty. He gets the assist for Barella's opener. Seven goals and three assists in 13 starts in all competitions. But this was the best I've seen him play in a long time. But it, it, exactly that, I think... And what you said about the movement is an important thing because too many people can get focused on what strikers do with the ball. Are they getting those goals and things like that? But Martinez's movement off the ball is fantastic as well. And that yeah. creates opportunities for other people to kind of run and burst into. And like you said, the kind of onus, I guess, is on him at the moment to kind of step up and provide. And, 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 he, and he did that. So it's fascinating to kind of see things slowly come back together now after kind of slightly tricky start to the season and to kind of see them pushing back towards the top of the table where they know they can be. So once everybody is back and fit with Martinez firing as well, it'd be exciting times for them. Yeah, and Nicola Barella from midfield. He just keeps getting better and better. Four goals and five assists from him in 11 league games. It's already his best ever goal output for a season. It's sensational and you can see why people are falling over themselves to see if Nicola Barella is going to be available for transfer because he is just this good. Exactly. And, you know, you stole my line, you know, best ever season and we're what, 11, 11 games into the season. Yeah. So yeah. the potential for him to kind of set numbers that, well, he already has set numbers that he's not seen before, but I guess the potential for him to kind of really, really show out and, and kind of demonstrate why he's one of the best midfielders going, kind of the world's at his feet in that regard. And of course, unfortunately for Inter, the more he does kind of score those goals and get those assists and, and not just any goals or any assists, but important goals in, in, in big games, the more people from, from other leagues are going to be looking, thinking, mm, do you know what? There's definitely room for our team at any time for, for a player of that quality. So that's obviously the slightly tricky thing with Inter. You know, they always kind of face that our players going to want to kind of kick on and move on to the next step. We've seen it happen in the past, but if they manage to kind of keep all their players, then it's going to be a very exciting team to watch for, for years to come because a lot of their team are very young. That's the good yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, over to Juventus though, and, and they've had two clean sheets and scored six goals in a week. It's not perfect. They're still giving up way too many chances, in my opinion, but it steps in the right direction. Weston McKenney back on the score sheet, I think for the first time in the league this season, and a nice tribute to the late, great Robbie Coltrane who passed away this week in his celebration. He was good here, Weston. Uh, back to his all-action best for much of it, which would be a relief to USMNT fans. 
Yeah, definitely. And the only criticism I would give of Weston McKenney is that he should have scored earlier in the game anyways. So, uh, but obviously I'll let him off for the header. But yeah, I mean, from a Juventus perspective, they've looked so disjointed throughout the season, but to kind of get those wins back to back over Torino and, and Empoli kind of shows that they're slowly finding their feet. I know I think you're going to touch on it in a moment, but they kind of switched up their system a little bit. And so it's good to see McKenney kind of kicking on because again, as we mentioned countless times already, all eyes are on the World Cup. It literally just, it well, it is only a couple of weeks away. And so you want to have the confidence that, you know, obviously US men's national team weren't at the previous tournament. So going into it, you know, you're going to be coming up against England. That's going to be an intriguing game. You want to see players hitting top form. And so to see Weston McKenney impressing in a game like that, getting on the score sheet, it's only encouraging to see that hopefully, you know, things are going to kind of align. And over the next couple of weeks, a few other players will kind of find their feet a little bit. I know obviously Gio Reyna scored for Dortmund at the weekend. Pulisic, okay, maybe he didn't do much against Manchester United, but he looked really good when when Chelsea played Brentford when I was there the other week. I thought he was probably their most exciting player and he wasn't on the pitch for very long. So it's kind of, well, I guess that's just what you want, right? You want to see them kicking on and, and playing week in, week out and, and delivering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned it there briefly, but Juve went 3-5-2 as a setup. It allowed Quadrado and Kostic to get forward and raise, and I thought that worked wonders. Kostic's delivery is still absolutely exceptional. Uh, Moise Ken is probably a better foil for Vlaovic than Milik, and even with the Serbian quiet, Ken stepped up. This system is better for Juventus. Um, it, it still isn't quite getting the best out of Manuel Locatelli, I thought. You know, he playing as, as kind of the... Lo the lowest point of the midfield, the deepest point, isn't quite where I'd have him. He looked a little bit better um, once Paredes came on and, and moved him a little bit further forward. But on the whole, this 3-5-2 feels like a better sit setup for right now. The fact that Juve don't quite have everyone available. You know, Di Maria is still out. Uh, Kyle George is still out. Paul Pogba still out. There's a lot of, of players here still missing from this side before it's at full strength. So with the players that are available right now, this gets the best out of Kostic and Quadrado, and that's a good thing for for Juventus. Yeah, I think if you're a Juventus fan, obviously, you know, it was only a month or so ago when, you know, there were a lot of red cards, there were a lot of disappointing results, and it felt like the team were a little bit in disarray. I think we have to give a little bit of credit for Allegri 4 switching to the 3-5-2 and kind of recognising that with so many players out at the moment, he can really play the way that he maybe wanted to. And so he had to make the necessary switches. And like you said, Moise Keane came in, picked up a goal. It's kind of good to see him hopefully fulfilling his potential. And then, you know, just recognising that, you know, maybe it's best to kind of have the wing backs or the left mid, right midfield or however you, however you wish to interpret a 3-5-2 and just trying to be a little bit more fluid. So I think considering we've, criticised him in the last couple of weeks about some of his decisions. I think we have to say fair play to him for, for recognising the need to do that and the kind of the results speaks for themselves. Yeah, and also fair play to him for turning the screw, I think, uh, as much as anything else. You know, you, we've seen Juve start fast before and then sit deep and go on a bit of a, well, I suppose you'd call a white knuckle ride to try and see out games, <laughs> right? Like, we've seen that from Juve at points this season. And actually, I think that it's better for them in, in some ways, especially against a team... We, you know, with with a less of a quality kind of bar than them in Empoli, and Empoli have been really good away from home this season. But you know, on paper, uh, you know, how many of these Empoli players get into the Juventus team? The answer is not many, right? So, so you're looking at this and going, right, you've got you've got the early goal, 
can you now push on and make sure that this isn't another one of those nights where you're going, oh, we conceded in the 85th minute and we drew one all. Um, and, and so that's, I think, what I would give the most credit to Allegri for. He let the players go for it and, and they got their just rewards for it as well. But the big test now is against Benfica in the Champions League and a real last chance saloon for any hopes of qualification. It's a real quality arbiter, I think, after the embarrassment of that defeat at Maccabi Haifa last time out. Yeah, um, for all the the kind of praise we've just lavished on Allegri in the last couple of minutes or so, that's where it comes down to. Juventus are not a team that should be, or not a club, especially with their reputation, that should be you know exiting the the Champions League at the group stage and kind of losing to Maccabi Haifa. And I obviously say that with with all due respect to Maccabi Haifa. So as good as it is, kind of winning two games back to back against Empoli and Torino and keeping clean sheets, you know you. You earn your money against Benfica in the Champions League midweek. So do, if you can kind of replicate the performances we've seen in the last week against Benfica, then Juve will be absolutely fine. If they don't and, you know, they, they suffer another defeat, then I, I guess all those questions that Allegri's put off are probably going to come crashing back down on him again. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Benfica with a massive win over Porto at the Jogal uh, on Friday night in, in the Clasico in Portugal. So they are six points clear at the top of the Primeira and absolutely flying under Roger Schmidt. So that's not going to be an easy game by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think they're one of four unbeaten teams so far this season um, across Europe. So or at least across Europe's you know big leagues. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a real test of, of whether this is a, a flash in the pan for Juventus or not. Uh, but I'd like to use our third and final main segment today, Jay, to talk about managers and especially those who find themselves at the wrong end of the Premier League table. Aston Villa lost 3-0 to Fulham midweek and swiftly moved to part ways with Steven Gerrard. I mean, he was sacked before he left West London. Um, it paid <laughs> off the thumping win at the weekend over Brentford that you were there to witness. More's the pity from your bees-based perspective, I, I imagine. The Villa live again. Is that a new manager? bounce or a lack of manager bounce in action no, I don't want to talk about this game <laughs> now nah, I think there'd been so much um toxicity around Gerard in the final few weeks of his campaign you know Aston Villa fans you know you know very vocally very saying that they want him. you know very vocally singing that they wanted him out mocking what happened when he slipped playing for Liverpool against Chelsea I mean that's not a good sign at all so they were always going to come out and have a pretty good reaction against Brentford on on Sunday, well, certainly they were always going to start, you know, with a little more confidence. Fast, um, yeah. And, you know, my colleague, Greg Evans, who covers Aston Villa, even said, um, like, during the warm-ups and when the songs were being sung, he's like, oh, there's, there's like a miles better atmosphere in the stadium already. And obviously that feeds off into the players. Scoring a goal after 63 seconds is only going to help your, uh, is only going to help your, what you're trying to achieve. And then I think Brentford kind of just played into their hands. They were, overwhelmed you know three nil down after 14 minutes I think that's the quickest or one of the quickest that a team's ever conceded three goals in, in such a short space of time so they're massively helped but obviously one of our biggest criticisms during Gerard's time in charge of Aston Villa was that it felt like he just could not quite get the balance between the the midfield and the attack especially trying to crowbar all those players in together and Watkins started out on the right wing Leon Bailey was on the left wing Ings kind of playing through the middle with Buendia behind them. Buendia was freed from his prison and he was excellent. <laughs> the thing is, Buendia's got a very good record of scoring goals and assisting against Brentford anyways, and, and, and that continued. But Watkins, you know, coming up against his former team and he just kept attacking the space between um, the centre-back and the left wing-back. He did it really well. It was the same with Bailey on the other side. It just looked like a team that, yeah, had kind of been released from their shackles. They were so free. Matty Cash had a really good game at, at right back as well. Conta did a pretty good job against Ivan Tony. 
So it's a team filled with confidence. So why Gerard couldn't elicit the same level of performance from those players will, I guess we might not ever know the full answers, yeah. but I think it was just when you compare the performance on Thursday to the performance on Sunday, you can only kind of come to the conclusion that some of the players must have been deeply unhappy with with what Gerard was trying to achieve because it was such a polarising, two completely polarising performances that, for me, I think, well, well, that must be it. That They must have been kind of unhappy with what he was trying to do and, and Aaron Danks has kind of changed things and refreshed it a little bit and they've massively responded to it. So it's obviously a shame Gerard had to lose his job, but it had been on the cards for a very, very long time because in his 11 months at the club, I don't think anybody had seen well, nobody had really seen that much evolution or, or development, even though they'd spent a fair bit of money. Yeah, they were no better aside when Gerard left than they were when, when Dean Smith had left, you know, no. a year beforehand, which is pretty damning, I think, across the yeah. course of it. I mean, I was there at the cottage on, on Thursday night and Villa were among the worst Premier League teams I've seen at the cottage in, in a number of years. Um, so, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and this is it. You know, Aaron Danks has come in. He's not particularly heralded. A lot of the backroom staff went when Gerard went as well. Mm. Switched straight to a 4-2-3-1, which I think a lot of people have been calling for at Aston Villa. It allowed that front four to have the freedom that they they wanted to attack as a unit. And it paid off straight away. And and, and that's kind of where you look at it and go, if if Aaron Danks can see this as you know a coach in yeah. the background, why was Steven Gerrard not seeing it? Um, but look, in stark contrast, Leeds kept faith with Jesse Marsh after their loss to midweek, uh, to Leicester midweek. And then they lost again, 3-2 at Ellen Road to Fulham. Marco Silva is actually charging around the Premier League like some sort of managerial grim reaper at the moment. Frank Lampard's <laughs> up next. <laughs> and seriously, though, like a lot of calls from the Leeds faithful for both Marsh and the board to go. I think that's important. Things aren't going well at the moment for Jesse, but the lack of this depth in this squad isn't, isn't helping him at all. I think... Um... You know, I was reading my, my colleague Phil Hayes kind of piece on, on what happened at the weekend and, and in it he was talking about how Victor Victor Orta, Lisa's director of football, during his search for Bielsa's successor, not in the immediate few days after it happened, but during the kind of preparation, knowing that one day he'd go, looked at around 40 different coaches and came to the conclusion that Jesse Marsh was the... Um, I kind of guess the best fit, the most obvious choice to kind of continue what Bielsa had started at the club. So if less than nine, ten months later, um, Leeds decide to get rid of Jesse Marsh, then that's, uh, that is an indictment of, of what they're trying to achieve. Um, as you kind of said, issues with, I guess, the quality of the squad. We all know that it's a very, very young side and that's not necessarily a, a barometer to success, but in those moments where a team's going through a tricky period, you, you do need kind of experienced players to... Leaders, right. To, you need leaders to rely on. But I think, I guess one of their biggest issues has just been their inability to to put away chances. And a lot of that stems down to, to Bamford's injury issues. You know, Bamford's uh, one of those players who mentioned it with Martinez, but his movement off the ball and the kind of way he links everything together is, is really intelligent. But at the moment, he can't put the ball in the back of the net. You know, there's... Yeah. There's no irony lost on, well, Brentford fans, and I'm not talking for Brentford fans, but last time Bamford scored was against Brentford and he injured himself celebrating. So it's a little bit like, you know, and that was that was in December last year. But he's a, he's a really talented player, but he just can't seem to find a back of the net at the moment. And then you kind of need the, the parts around him to kind of step up and chip in. But you can criticise Marsh for maybe not getting the selection wrong and getting the tactics wrong at times. 
but he still inherited a team that's now lost Rafinha, Calvin Phillips, and is trying to, you know, rehabilitate a Bamford who's been injured for the, the vast majority of the last 12 months. So those, arguably, the three key players under Bielsa that Marsh has not been able to, well, in rely two on, instances, yeah. he, can't rely, he can't rely on them because you've got to remember Phillips was injured for a large part of last season as well. So if you've ripped the three players, um, three key players out of any team, especially in the bottom half of the, the Premier League table, they're seriously going to struggle. And unfortunately, at the moment, those kind of new recruits they brought in over the summer, they've shown flashes of brilliance. You know, I still think Brendan Aronson's probably one of the most exciting young players in the league at the moment, but can't all be focused on the attack running through him. He needs some support. So they're in a really, really tricky situation at the moment. But it sounds like it's being suggested that that Marsh won't leave before the World Cup. But then football's one of those games where you know, if you keep Marsh in until after the World Cup and then Leeds lose their first two games and you sack him then. Have you, you know, missed you, a massive opportunity? Have you missed? Exactly. So it's tricky to predict what's going to happen, but Leeds are definitely in a, in a predicament. Well, they go to Anfield next, so that should be nice and easy for them. Um, and then they have Bournemouth <laughs> at home. And that, I suppose, is the kind of game. If they don't win that Bournemouth game, I just can't see Jesse keeping well, it's, his job it's Tottenham. It's Tottenham after Bournemouth as well. So, I mean, yeah. to be fair to them, <laughs> and you know, Liverpool fans might kick me for this, but <laughs> they might have a better chance of beating Liverpool than beating Bournemouth on, on current form at the moment. At the moment, yeah, hundred percent. But I mean, look, there are some sp- bright sparks from a USMNT perspective. I think in that Tyler Adams was missing for this, and he was a massive hole in the middle of this midfield. There was no ability to link the defence with the attack. It all just felt breaking down and, and Fulham were able to sort of maraud through at will. And I just think that goes to show just how important Tyler Adams has become to this Leeds team very, very, very quickly. Um, and as you say, Brendan Aronson, one of the brighter sparks, Louis Sinistera was good as well, but there wasn't much for Leeds fans to, to really cling on to. Um, uh, but this is it. The away fans are turned on Marsh against Leicester. The home fans turned on here. You could ask, can you come back from that kind of atmosphere? But then let's talk about Brendan Rodgers because Le- Leicester have kept faith with Brendan Rodgers and two wins from two have propelled them out of the relegation zone. Similarly, Steve Cooper was given a new contract in Nottingham Forest. They've picked up five points in four games since then. Now, obviously, they play West Ham tonight, so we'll see how that one goes. Wolves have given up with their managerial search, it seems. Bournemouth still have a temporary manager in Gary O'Neill. It doesn't feel like there's too many rich pickings to be had in the vacancies department right now either. And look, it's one thing being Aston Villa... And being like, okay, it's got too toxic around Gerard. The players are, are revolting. I don't really feel like that with Marsh. I don't feel Leeds have given up. I don't think it's the a lack of effort or a lack of application. It's just they just can't seem to get it right at the moment. Whereas I thought that we with Aston Villa, that performance at the cottage where they had a ridiculous red card for, for a headbutt, I don't I still can't believe that's been rescinded. You know, whether it's soft or not, <laughs> there's head there's head-to-head contact yeah. and it's yeah. really stupid from Douglas Louise. There's an own goal and a silly penalty. These are the kind of games you go, right, they've just they've given up. Um, I don't feel like that with Leeds. And and so the question is who comes in to replace him? Because Wolves have shown that it's not easy to replace a manager. They've been knocked back by some of their key targets. Aston Villa might have slightly more luck with, with some of theirs, but if they're going for the likes of, of Ruben Amorim at Sporting and, and Unai Emery at Villarreal, it's quite a big ask to, to say, right, can you give up your teams in the Champions League and the Europa League and, and come and manage in a Premier League you know, relegation scrap? It, it's a very different level of, of where you are to where you're going. And yes, money talks, but... I think Wolves are seeing that it's not just that. And, and there is this struggle to actually bring in quality coaches. You've got to have a plan. Yeah. And I guess it also doesn't help that, that at the moment, 
there are so many Premier League clubs looking for managers that it kind of muddies the market even more. But I mean, you only kind of have to look at what some of these teams have do have done to realise that there's not necessarily a, a, a coherent strategy going on. You know, Wolves have obviously been linked to Julian Lopetegui. I think they've been linked to Sean Dyche, you know, two managers with very, very different philosophies. Yeah. Aston Villa were, were very briefly linked to, to Thomas Frank, Mauricio Pochettino, Rubina Amarim, as you said. Again, managers with completely different profiles who want to play in different ways. And I guess that kind of suggests that they're kind of just reacting to the market a little bit, just who, what's out there as opposed to, and this is where maybe the difference is with Leeds. Leeds kind of identified over a long period of time different coaches who could maybe follow on from Bielsa's work. And maybe that's why they're so reluctant to kind of give up on that project just yet because they'd done their requisite research. They felt like Marsh was the best person to take that on. Whereas Gerard, it always felt like a little bit of a, well, it felt it like a, a Perslow signing, didn't it? It felt and like, like, like oh, Perslow's mates with him, he'll do. Yeah, and it felt like he was appointed on on his reputation as a player. And don't get me wrong, he he, he obviously did some really good good stuff with Rangers. But I guess you know when Gerard kind of rolled in and spoke about getting the club fighting into the getting the club fighting into Europe and things like that straight off the bat. Yes, that's great. But if you don't back that up with immediate results, you quickly look very quickly. But to go back onto onto the manager search. It's just there's a paucity of options out there and everyone's kind of going for the same names and things like that. So, do you know what? I'd completely even forgotten that Gary O'Neill was was still caretaker manager. By this point, I was like, oh, yeah, Gary O'Neill's got, Gary O'Neill's got the job, right? Yeah. Um, but maybe what a few of these places, I think, a few of these clubs, sorry, are thinking is, okay, again, World Cup, two, three, four weeks away. How desperate is our situation? Now, in the case of Wolves, I'd say it's pretty desperate. In the case of Aston Villa and Bournemouth, who've picked up, well, Villa obviously just won at the weekend and Bournemouth have been on a, a pretty solid stream. You can maybe hold out until the World Cup swings around and kind of react to what happens then. Because I'm pretty certain as soon as the whistle comes down on the final weekend of fixtures before the World Cup starts, there's going to be like a domino effect and you're going to see loads of managerial changes. So, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for, for a couple of weeks. Gareth Southgate to Aston Villa before after the World Cup. You have it here <laughs> first. That is Back bold. is stomping ground. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how these things... I mean, look, with Gerard, just as a final point, you only have to look down one division to the championship to see his former assistant, Mick Beal, QPR, top of the mm. championship after 16 games. Uh, it's... Uh, Slightly clearer how things are going better at Aston Villa last season than they are this season when you take that into account. But let's go around the ground, shall we, Jay? And let's start in La Liga. Uh, Barcelona followed up a good win over Villarreal in midweek with a 4-0 thumping of Athletic Club. Frankie de Jong is the headline. Two performances at the base of midfield, looking like his old self again. It's been a good, good week in terms of responding after a tough period. Obviously, that Inter result at, at, in the Champions League and then the loss in El Clasico to Real Madrid looked like it could become a very difficult period for Barcelona with Villarreal and Athletic who were both started the season relatively well uh, but they've made relatively light work of it and there's been word this week that Xavi said to Frankie de Jong all right I'm going to play you at the base and uh, we want you to do more of your Ajax stuff and my question is maybe you should have tried this sooner. I mean fair play to Frankie de Jong because you know we can only imagine what it's it's been like, you know, when the club that you've dreamed of playing for from a young age is trying to trying to force you out and their squabbles over money and everything. So to have the professionalism that you've shown and kind of, like you said, 
Xavi's kind of challenged him to to play at the base of midfield, and he's done it and responded in the manner that he has. Kind of speaks of speaks of his attitude and and his overall quality. But yeah, obviously it was important for Barcelona after that. You know, in for, from Barcelona's perspective, what was a, a disaster that week where you know it all went wrong against Inter in the Champions League, and then they were shocked by Real Madrid as well. To kind of come back with those two wins was really important to. And I say this in speech marks, stabilise the club because who knows how stable Barcelona really are. It always feels like they're, they're one moment away from, from catastrophe. Yeah. I thought Usman Dembele looked absolutely superb and it almost makes the the kind of contract situation he had in the summer where he's allowed to, where his previous deal was allowed to expire and then they, they re-signed him, look even more ridiculous because, I mean, he was involved in, in all four goals. I think it was a goal and three assists. So, it was absolutely phenomenal. So from Barcelona's perspective, things are looking a little better, but then they've still got two games left in the Champions League to, I don't think anyone's expecting them to go through, but at least maybe restore a little bit of pride and dignity and kind of show that they went out fighting. And again, that will be the real kind of test for, for where they're at. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Real Madrid beat Sevilla 3-1. A goal for Lucas Vasquez and insist for Marco Asensio. The squad players stepping up yet again for Real Madrid. It's just just one of those places and under Carlo Ancelotti he just continues to to sort of massage I would say this squad in in such a wonderful way and and, and get everybody firing even when they're not used week in week out but also Fede Valverde we talked a little bit about Nicolo Barella turning up into this in the goal machine Fede Valverde is doing the same I think I saw somewhere that he's on a total of something like 0.6 xg for the season he's got six goals um, he has ten times his, his his expected goals output, um, and the rumor <laughs> the rumor is that Carlo Ancelotti said to him. Well, he said after the game, he said, oh, "They said, why are you scoring more this season?" He was like, "Well, I didn't want to be responsible for the coach, um, the coach basically leaving the job." And everyone was like, "What?" Turns out that Ancelotti's basically been like, "If you don't score ten goals this season, I'm going to rip up my coaching badges because I'm not doing something right." And, and he's responded <laughs> in, in, in fine style. So, yeah, just absolutely incredible. Another rocket from Fede Valverde. Big game, Fede. Just turned up he's, every week this year. He's just becoming a little bit of a, a cheat code at this point because, obviously, when he scored, you know, Vasquez had only just put them 2-1 up. So the game was still, it was still tight. And to just score like that, 0.0 xG, Obviously, listeners can't couldn't see my reaction, but I didn't react at first because my mouth was wide open. That's absolutely <laughs> insane. Zero point zero. That is absolutely insane. Um, the way he's kind of developed is uh, is simply phenomenal. And you know what? Shouts out to to Carlo Ancelotti for kind of having that man management skill to kind of recognise that Valverde was a player who needed to almost be threatened, <laughs> uh, kindly threatened um, to kind of kick on and, and kind of fulfil his potential um, because it's obviously different players respond in different ways and Ancelotti somehow has kind of realised he needed to make Valverde feel like there was a little bit of jeopardy for him to fulfil his potential. So it's an absolute masterstroke. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. One more bit on Spain. Uh, a little bit of common sense lacking in a game, the game where Villarreal beat Almeria. Um, Alex Baena was booked. And then when he scored the equaliser for Villarreal, he lifted up his top, put it over his head um, to reveal a message, basically thanking Villarreal's vice president who, or former vice president who passed away last week for all the things he'd done for the club. Um, and then he got a second yellow card and was sent off. Because to, for, for revealing this message 
just a bit brutal, really. Um, felt felt very upsetting. The players were absolutely apoplectic. Uh, Manu Morales, who was on the bench for Villarreal, was then sent off for his reaction to set red card. It, it just all went all over the over the boil. Is how I'd probably put it. But you do sometimes wonder if common sense should maybe prevail a little bit more. I mean, didn't this? I'm sure this happened in a Premier League game a couple of years ago. I just can't think of what the example was. But I don't think the player got sent off. I think it was only a a yellow card at that point. And I think the referee kind of, kind of, I think you could see, you could lip read the referee saying like, I don't, I don't want to do this, but I kind of have to do it. I can't remember who it was. It's you, not the referee's you know fault. We should, about, pro- we should probably make this clear. It's definitely not the ref's fault here. It's just the rule. There's no obviously leeway in the rule. But, what, but but to play devil's advocate, what is the leeway and the rule supposed to be? If it's a nice message, you don't get booked for it. I, I don't I yeah. don't think players should get booked for taking their shirt off anyways because it's it's it's, do, it's a great thing to do, right? I always it's thought to do it was, with sponsorship, and that's actually genuinely where we are with football. It's to do with um, sponsorship. Because, well, basically, if someone's paid to have their name on your shirt and you take the shirt off to celebrate, and the iconic oh, image doesn't word. have the yeah, and that's what football it's football in twenty twenty two. Yeah, there you are. But uh, I can't believe that. Is that actually is that is that actually the reason? We did some research on this in ranks back in the day, and it, 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 this was what we came to as a as a conclusion. So sadly, that is the case. Yeah, um, not not a great vibe, but alas, no, here we are. Killed the vibe uh, with that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, in France, PSG beat Ajaccio on Friday night in a game that included one of the most beautiful Lionel Messi goals you will ever see. It is glorious. If you haven't seen it, go and check it out. Um, Six assists from Messi to Mbappe this season. I just do wonder what he's complaining about. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of like a, like if you're a coach, again, we're talking about cheat codes with Freddy Valverde, but Messi's kind of vision and and, and Mbappe's speed, like it, it was never... It was never not going to fail. Yeah, never not going to work. That's the one. I was never not going to fail. That's completely wrong. Never not going to work. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what 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 is Mbappe complaining about? But again, we were talking about Ronaldo earlier and that constant drama. I feel like it's a massive shame that that's beginning to happen with Kinney and Mbappe, where everything you know PSG win three 0 and obviously Gaultier got really upset about it a couple of weeks ago. But it's just an unavoidable topic at the moment that whenever Mbappe's spoken about, it's just going to be. You know, is he actually happy at PSG? Is he leaving in January, as some places are suggesting? Is he leaving in the summer? It's a real shame, but be intriguing to see what what does happen. But it's just it's just a constant drama at the moment. Yeah, two goals for him though, so maybe he'd be delighted with that. No Neymar on the pitch either. No, he's going to be so, upset. He didn't get a third. Yeah, exactly. And right, Lille beat Monaco in a four-three thriller on Sunday night. A truly mad game with Remy Cabella scoring twice. Not quite the player that uh, he was at Newcastle United. He is flying at Lille. He was really, really impressive here. Uh, Leon got off the mark under Laurent Blanc. The two-one win over Montpellier in a bad-tempered encounter. The red card total just continues to go through the roof in League R. Uh, and you'll be delighted to know that I've solved the USMNT's number nine problem. Seven goals and two assists in 12 league games this season for Stad Rhymes, New York-born Arsenal loanee Flo Balogun. <laughs> Imagine, that would, be a, that would be a plot twist that, that I think would get a lot of people very excited. 
I'd uh, make it happen. Make it happen. I think it, I think it's on. He's playing really, really well for Rome. So uh, shouts out to Flo Balogun. Right, Serie A saw Lazio beat Atalanta 2-0 in Bergamo. Brilliant performance from Maurizio Sarri's men here, handing Atalanta their first league defeat of the season and jumping above them to third in the table. Very impressive. Uh, Napoli, though, took full advantage of that slip to go three clear at the top. Victor Osterman scored an absolute beauty to give them all three points against Jose Mourinho's Roma. And the Napoli Express keeps steaming onwards it's such a good goal Jay the half volley Chris Smalling was brilliant in this game right absolutely brilliant throughout the whole fixture made some unbelievable blocks made some incredible tackles and he kind of does everything right here he he shepherds Osimhen out to the side of the box and then Osimhen goes full Marco Van Basten in like Euro 88 and just scores this fizzing half volley across the keeper like Wait, Patricio is just standing there like, what? Hang on, nah. Um, and, and, and it just keeps going on and, and Napoli keep rolling on. But what a goal. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because, I mean, anybody who's seen the goals has kind of watched the replay countless times. And Yuma, I feel a little bit for Smalling because some people are going to look at that and just think, oh, Smalling, you know, no wonder he's nowhere near the England squad. And, and, and that would be really unfair because I think there's a moment where his positioning is maybe not perfect, but then, you know, Simeon's kind of got the run on him, strong boy, kind of muscles him out. But I still think Smalling does more than enough in 99 out of 100 scenarios to put Simeon off and that absolutely gets launched into Rosette. But the kind of composure to put that past Rui Patricio and, and obviously lots of people comparing it to Marco Van Basten is exceptional. And obviously it came not long after he missed a far more simpler chance and yeah. completely, you know, was through one-on-one and completely put it wide the complete opposite of a clean connection. He scuffed it. So again, if we're talking about strikers having a good mentality, then Simeon kind of showed showed what he's all about and really showed that quality to to completely forget about that miss and then produce a goal like that moments later. It was, um, I mean, just, I, I can't explain it in any way that does it justice because <laughs> it's just so well hit. And even the yeah. pass leading up to it, people aren't even talking about the pass, which is just disrespectful because even that's like a perfect pass. It's a fantastic yeah. goal. And to win a game like that in that way is, I think it's what every fan kind of dreams of. Yeah, yeah, just a glorious, glorious hit from um yeah, Napoli keep rolling on. Uh, Milan beat Monza 4-1. They went second with Brahim Diaz shining again. We've mentioned it before, but I just love watching him. And the <laughs> arrival of Shard de Catalara seems to have spurred him on. He's already surpassed last year's goal total this season. It's October. And um, look, Milan obviously won the Scudetto last year, which he would have been delighted about, but he wasn't at his best. This season, he is right back cooking. So, shouts out to Brahim. This was this was a real show from him against Monza. Uh, in Germany, Gio Reyna marked his first start since returning from injury with a lovely goal. Borussia Dortmund Beach took up 5-0. Very impressive from BBB. They might continue to swing from the sublime to the ridiculous, but they're always entertaining. Jude Bellingham bagging too as well. We've talked about complete midfielders a fair bit in this episode, but... I think if we've talked about Valverde, Bellingham and Barella uh, in the same episode, we're, we're doing something right. In fact, they would be the, v- they would be the BVB, right? Hey, did you do that on purpose? Or was no, that I, just, literally, I literally that went is, out as we came along. I was like, oh, that, God. That's special. That's special. But I'm no, just on, so often. just on Bellingham, I think I've said it before, it just baffles me that he's, what, 19, 20 years old, but he looks like, he's older and more mature than everybody else he plays with on the pitch. It literally just screams to me like when you're 10 years old 
and you end up playing with a 16 year old on the on the school playground or down at the local park and like they just know absolutely everything you're going to do i just cannot wrap my head around how he's so young yet you often with young players you you see they're quite immature in the way they do that you know they overdo the skills and things like that they 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 try to make what I would call Hollywood pass at the wrong moments. And to be expected, they're young, they're learning, they're developing. But Bellingham is just so clinical and efficient in everything he does. It's, it's, it's scary. And yeah. fair play to Reyna because I think that was his first goal in the Bundesliga since since August 2020-21. So that's, that's massive for him. And you could see it in the way he celebrated. He kind of felt like a, a release of emotion in that moment. Like, you know, this needs to be the moment where I kind of kick on and kind of put, put my injury troubles behind me. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Completely agree. Um, leaders Union Berlin slipped to their only their second defeat of the season, surprised us to relegation threatened Bochum, meaning that Bayern, who won 2 0 at Hoffenheim, are just a point behind them now and breathing down their necks. It's never where you want to be with Bayern breathing down your neck, is it? Uh, and Leipzig left it late to steal a point, having been 3 0 down at Augsburg. Uh, they had defender Iago sent off when three goals ahead and then completely crumbled. A very silly man and the villain of the play once again. What's he then that <laughs> says I play the villain? Um, there we have it. Uh, and finally, in the Premier League, Erling Haaland bagged himself another brace as Manchester City saw off the challenge of the Zerbi's Seagulls. Too quick, too strong, too good for Adam Webster. This is outrageous, this first goal, Jay. <laughs> no, I love it. And I know there was a little bit of a... A consideration if it if it was a foul in the build up, but it definitely isn't a foul. It's not a foul. It's just Harlan being an absolute robot machine, whatever it was is you want to call him, and just simply out muscling Webster and uh, and putting putting away a, an easy finish, and and also just on um, there's obviously parallels between that and what happened with Callum Wilson and and Hugo Lloris, mm. but same with that scenario, Lloris has just made an, <laughs> has made like a comedy error and just run into Wilson more than anything, but I mean. Haaland is just the, I don't think there's anything more we can kind of add on Haaland. But obviously with Brighton, still not one under Roberto De Zerbi. I don't think they were ever expected to win this game. But it'll be intriguing to see how they kind of kick on under him because I think it's been four or five games now since he since he replaced Graham Potter and, you know, things haven't quite worked out how they might have expected. Yeah, well, I think he's going to be looking forward to that World Cup break to try and instill some of this philosophy in at Brighton. Uh, Leicester pump Wolves 4-0 at Molyneux with some absolutely glorious goals. Yuri Tielemon with an absolute screamer and um, probably the pick of the bunch. Everton beat Palace 3-0 at Goodison Park. Very impressive this from Lampard's Toffees, who were firmly in control of this. They're a little bit Jekyll and Hyde, Jay, but when they're good, especially at home, they're very good. Yeah, I mean, they've obviously tightened up at the back a lot. and um, But to... Uh, you know, I was um I think I was on the train when they were playing this game on the way up to 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 Birmingham. And when I saw it pop up 3-0, I thought, hang on a second, Everton of Everton beat Crystal Palace 3-0. But you know, fair play to them. And and also there was so much talk, you know, way back in uh, January when when Lampard was appointed about oh, Lampard and Gerard, who's gonna kind of um who's gonna kind of be the, the managerial heavyweight between the two of them. But considering Lampard took over Everton in, in a far worse situation than, than Gerard did at Villa. I think we should probably acknowledge that, that Lampard's kind of outlasted him and, and, and done a better job so far. So there's still lots of things that need to be worked on, but they also have Calvert-Lewin back and, and that he's been a massive miss for them. So fair play to Everton and fair play to Lampard. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And leaders Arsenal dropped points at Southampton on Sunday. They drew one all. The Saints equaliser, a brilliantly worked goal uh, and a good and much needed point for Hassan Hootel's men. Obviously, they got a win over Bournemouth in midweek and now a point against Arsenal. That's a good four-point haul from those two games. They'll be they'll be pleased with that, Jay, because it was starting to look a little bit unravelly for Southampton. Southampton are... Very strange yeah. Yeah, to the words I'm I was going to put it a bit more politely than that. <laughs> I, I just can't quite work them out at the moment because it feels like they're always one game away from from Hassan Hootel being on the edge of losing his job. You know, you hear whispers about it all the time. Um, and then all of a sudden they'll pull out like a pretty good performance against a team, you know, maybe competing in the top six and they'll kind of show flashes of brilliance and what they're trying to do. It just, you know, you spoke about Jekyll and Hyde. They just seem to lurch from one thing to the other. And again, they're a very young side who, who've gone under a little bit of a, a rejuvenation this summer. You know, Romeo Lavia, Gavin Bazunu, you know, Joe Rebo, lots of young talent in that side. Um, but fair play to them for kind of shutting down shutting down Arsenal. And like you said, it was a really well-worked goal. Um, but having said that, there are a lot of moments where Jesus should have done better in front of goal. So Arsenal definitely had the, the chances to kind of win this game, but just couldn't take them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they stay, still are top of the league, though. But with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup with the big soccer stories across Europe for this weekend. All that's left for me to do is say thank you to you all for listening as ever. Thank you so much to Jay Harris as well. Pleasure as always. I've been Jack Collins. This has been your Weekend Review and we'll see you next week. Take it easy. The U.S. hit rock bottom in Cuba in 2017. Can't even talk about it. Still, it's tough to, to speak about. We failed. Simple. It was a, it was a very dark time in, in U.S. soccer's history. You know, not making the World Cup. That disaster, in some ways, was a blessing in disguise. With so many younger players coming in, everybody was extremely hungry. Competition started. The U.S. men's national team went through a dramatic evolution. Was at a point where I think, okay, I'm going to lose these guys here. They're going to stop believing in what we're doing. They're still forming. They're not fully realized players yet. I remember after that El Salvador game, just thinking to myself, man, like this is going to be a grind. They're talented. There's a lot of hype around them. But are they really ready to take that next step? Everyone has something to prove. We got a lot of players who probably have that mentality. And now this team will head to the World Cup in Qatar with massive expectations around it. If we can get our group to play without fear, you know, we'll be we'll be dangerous. We have one mission is to go to the World Cup and to win. I'm Paul Tenorio. And I'm Sam Stasekul. We are excited to bring you a special podcast series on the Athletic Soccer Show feed. From Cuba to Qatar, remaking the U.S. men's national team. The series details how the team was rebuilt, from the catastrophe of not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup to now sending a talented, young roster to Qatar. You'll hear from the biggest names in U.S. soccer, from head coach Greg Berhalter to former greats like Demarcus Beasley and Clint Dempsey and current players like Tyler Adams, Weston McKenney, and Gio Reyna. The entire series will be out on November 1st on the Athletic Soccer Show podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.